This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rachio Christie. This is the show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is going to be genetic entropy. That's going to be a topic, a very interesting topic, one we've covered a few years past, but we'll be jumping into that. We want to make sure that you get a chance to look at our website. It's evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, where we have archived shows. Also, if you're interested in podcasts, you can download them from iTunes. We have a Facebook page, and be sure and check out ratiochristi.org also. If you want to email us, you can reach us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Well, Kirk, uh, it's great to be back. You had a great show last week. Yeah, it went pretty good. And I was off gallivanting around down south. Uh, my son got married. Yeah, your own so personal was, news item. Yeah, exactly. That's the news item of the day. <laughs> my son got married. Yeah, my son, Stephen, he's a second son. Married Jenny Winook. That was at Williamsburg, Virginia. So it was very nice. It was a lovely setting. Oh, that's a cool uh, place. Yeah, it is. Right next to Williamsburg is William and Mary University, and she's taking a law degree there. She's in law school there. So they were married in the chapel right on campus, the Christopher Wren Chapel. Wow. Very beautiful there. Cool. Something that's interesting that was just in the news, too, is that the college bowed to pressure from secularists, and they removed the cross from that hundreds of year old chapel. So it's a sad thing to bow to that kind of pressure and restrict people's freedom of religion. It's very sad. So Yeah, but whatever happened to freedom of speech in this country. Exactly. That's how our rights get taken away from us. It's from, you know, extremists pressuring others and forcing them to remove our rights. So yeah, and the thing but, that uh, I, I find interesting is that these people that are always complaining about this stuff, they're always complaining about viewpoints that disagree with theirs. Yeah, exactly. But they're the first ones to line up and take away other people's rights. So Right. Yeah. And if you say something that they agree with, then they don't have a problem with that. Until they disagree. <laughs> right. They're always changing. And that's the problem. You know, our rights are given to us by God, and that doesn't change. Those rights don't change. They will, they're universal rights. They're given to us once for all, and that's what gives us safety. But if you have a system where whatever the culture decides or whatever the 51% of the population decides, that's when things can fall apart, when you just have mob rule. Right. And that's really what's happening. Those who have the might, they make the rules. And so if you can uh, bring enough force to bear on people like the principals of uh, – or the presidents of colleges, then um, uh, you, know, you get your way uh, regardless of – 
anybody else's rights so right. because they're just man-made. And that's how you end up with tyrants. Exactly. And that's how you end up with bloodshed. And that's, that's what makes atheism uh, the bloodiest religion uh, in the world. So, yeah, and that's what to what up until recently has made this country different is that we had these freedom of speech and religion laws so that uh, at least theoretically everyone can uh, make their point of view known without uh, recrimination for it. That's right. When when people were actually tolerant or right. to- tolerant in the Christian definition. Right. But now we have an atheistic definition of tolerance which is completely intolerant. Which means if you don't agree with me, shut up. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. How tolerant is that, right? (laughs) Well, after the wedding, then we spent a few days just sightseeing and touring around Williamsburg. And then since I was halfway down there, I went on to the National Apologetics Conference at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And this was Friday and Saturday, and it was called Real World Christianity. I saw a lot of great speakers. Yeah, and you uh, sat around and everybody was apologizing all week? (laughs) That's right. Yes, that's what you do at an apologetics uh, (laughs) seminar. You say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. So, but uh, no, it was a a lot of fun. There were uh, Josh McDowell was there. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's great. Uh, John Lennox, the professor from Oxford who has debated Richard Dawkins so many times, was there and talked a little bit about some of his debates with Dawkins, too. That was good. Yeah. He is really a brilliant man. It was just so good to to listen to him and hear so much wisdom coming out of. somebody's mouth. It was terrific. I'll bet. William Dembski was there. He's one of the founding fathers of intelligent design movement. He's a double PhD, PhD in philosophy, PhD in mathematics, and he's the one that has done the hard, rigorous mathematical work proving intelligent design. So that was, uh, that was really good to listen to him. Yeah. Dr. Jay Richards was there. So we've spoken about him in the past. He's the author of Money, Greed, and God, a book on economics, and he's also done work on the fine-tuning of the universe with Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez, the uh, astrophysicist. So he was really, really interesting. And Hugh Ross was there. Henry Morris was there. It was interesting. They had a balance of old Earth creationists and young Earth creationists there. Huh. So you could kind of pick and choose who you wanted to talk to, who you, which you know, lecture you wanted to go to. Wow. So that was really interesting. And I guess, well, on Friday was when they had all the breakout sessions. So each hour, each session, you could choose between about 15 different lectures. So it was, it was really good. Wow. Of course, that made it tough sometimes to actually decide what you wanted to see because sometimes there were two or three that I wanted to go see. But Yeah, I'll bet. Then there were, uh, Gary Habermas was there. It was nice to see him again. He was one of my professors for my master's program. He's a, one of the leading experts on the resurrection. So that was all, all a very good, very good conference. So that's what I thought we would do today is kind of pick one of the topics that I learned about and, and discuss it. But we have not done the quote of the day. Oh. So I thought we'd do that. We're back to C.S. Lewis. And this is a great quote from him. He says, If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair. 
Really good advice from C.S. Lewis. Don't look for comfort. Look for truth, and then you get comfort thrown in. Yeah, that, that's what happened to him. He started out as an atheist and decided to look for the truth, and he found it. Yes, he did. And one of the neat things that John Lennox did was John Lennox is a professor at Oxford, and he studied at Oxford, and he remembers C.S. Lewis. Really? Yes. So now he was in the mathematics department, but he used to go and sneak over because by then C.S. Lewis was very famous. After World War II, he became very famous. And so it was standing room only in the lecture hall when he was teaching. And people would go just to listen to him, even if they weren't actually taking the classes that he was teaching. Right. Yeah, he's one of the people that, you know, if uh, some, sometimes people ask you the question, well, you know, if there was somebody from past history that you could talk to, who would you want to talk to? I think C.S. Lewis would be high on my list. Absolutely, me too. And so he told this story. I think in the past I've told the story about the fact that C.S. Lewis had a photographic memory and, you know, people sometimes I've had somebody, you know, or that, gee, that sounds too remarkable, you know, his how he used to get the students to pay attention to him and prove to them just how good his memory was. And people have said, no, you know, that just doesn't, uh, doesn't really sound true. But Dr. Lennox said that it really is true, that he really did have a photographic memory. And so what was funny was he remembers one time he was over there, he snuck in, and it was a very cold day. So when Dr. Lewis came in he would he as soon as the door opened he would begin his lecture so he had his lectures were completely memorized all of the logical inconsistencies and things had long before been worked out so you know everything he said was very precise mm-hmm. so he would he the minute the door opened he start talking and so he would walk up to the lecture podium and then he would take his hat off and he would unwind this big thick scarf that was around his neck and then he would take his coat off and all the time talking <laughs> and he would go through his complete lecture and uh, just a, a few minutes before he was finished he would look at his watch and then he would reverse the process so he would put on his coat and then he would wrap the big all the time talking wrap <laughs> the big coat around his, uh, you know, the scarf around his neck and put his hat on and start walking out and he would finish the last word of his lecture as the door closed behind him. (laughs) And that was what the kind of skill, the kind of thing that he was capable of doing because he had a complete 100% photographic memory. Wow. And so then somebody said, well, you know, what about asking questions? Couldn't you ask questions? And of course, you could, but those were later in the tutorials that they would do. And he would have a, a small office of his students that then they could speak to him and ask him questions and things. So, yeah. But uh, just another confirming story about C.S. Lewis's amazing mental powers. I have a photographic memory, too. Oh, yeah? What do you this Unfortunately, my film gets fogged a lot. Oh, we're doing sound effects now. Yes. Cool. <laughs> so we have our the, own laugh track. <laughs> the only problem is it's uh, it's a you know I got a free program to do it. I didn't want to buy some expensive program just so that I could do sound effects. But there's a slight gap 
So right before you select the sound effect, when you press play, there it pauses the, the sound for like two seconds. And then right. after it's done, it pauses the sound for two seconds. So I don't know how helpful this will be to us. Yeah, but, it, got, it got silent there for a minute. And I was like, oh, that joke didn't go over too well. <laughs> yeah, in fact, it did. <laughs> pause. Polite pause. Geez, I thought John, our engineer, was supposed to do this kind of stuff on this end. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. We'll wake him up and see if he can do something. Well, he's peacefully asleep over there, so I'll let him be. <laughs> right, and just in case you ever need a drum roll. How's that? Oh, cool. <laughs> Boy, we're in the big leagues now. I'm telling you. <laughs> All right, well, let's jump into the topic today. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And talking today about genetic entropy. Kirk, this was a lecture by John Sanford. He's been a guest on the show. And I guess it was about three years ago. So that particular show, not many people will remember it, perhaps, unless you're a longtime listener. But it was a terrific show, and we talked about his book, Genetic Entropy, and I do recommend that you buy his book. Let me tell people who John Sanford was. He's a, or is, he's a plant geneticist. He worked at Cornell University. He's semi-retired now. I understand he's quite wealthy because he was the inventor of the gene gun. And that is the gun that geneticists use when they want to inject DNA material into the nucleus of a cell. Oh, yeah. I've seen those on TV shows where they show the little clip with them puncturing the the little cell and stuff. Yep, the membrane of the nucleus. Right. Yeah, and that is – he was the inventor of that, and so he is an incredibly bright, very talented geneticist who, because of his research on genetics, became a Christian and is a young earth creationist. And a lot of it has to do with his work on genetics and seeing that the information in the gene pool of every living organism is decaying at a rapid pace. And so the earth simply cannot be, at least living organisms cannot be as old as the old earth scientists say because all everything would have gone extinct long before yeah you've mentioned that before on the program mm-hmm. so what he told the audience was <laughs> basically there's two worldviews there's two ways of looking at things one is that things are naturally going up or things are naturally getting better things are getting more complex there's more and more information organisms get better and better The universe as a whole gets more complex. That's one view. And so we see this as evolution. We see it as, you know, the Big Bang Theory where it's just natural that things like planets are going to form and life is going to appear and life is going to improve and you're going to have intelligence popping out of uh, nowhere, basically. All this whole process is this idea that things are naturally going up. And, you know, when you speak to people in just normal everyday conversation, you hear these kinds of things. You know, people will say things like, well, you know, uh, things are different now because thousands of years ago people weren't as smart as we are now. Mm-hmm. You know? And sure. actually, <laughs> if you, from the beginning of the ability to make measurements like IQ tests, actually things are trending downward. 
So that's the second worldview, and that is that everything naturally goes down. Everything is naturally decaying. Everything is naturally falling apart and getting worse. Mm -hmm. And this goes along with the idea of entropy, second law of thermodynamics, basically what you could call what he called uh, the law of degeneration. My car is proof of that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Everything that we know in the real world gives us proof that everything is decaying and degenerating. Mm -hmm. And this is described in the Bible. This is the Christian worldview. Even other religions don't have this worldview necessarily unless they have borrowed it from the Judeo-Christian worldview. But we find it in, I'll give you a couple verses. We don't need to uh, read them, but if those listeners want to look them up, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Psalm 39, verses 5, verse 11 is just a few of the verses that we could use that describe this, what the Bible calls the groaning of the universe. Mm-hmm. It is drying up, decaying, moth-eaten, rusting away, and that is what science tells us. Dr. Sanford pointed out that this actually is what's happening to each of us individually, right? We're just like the car that's wearing out, you know, needs constant maintenance to keep repairing it. And we're just like that. We're actually dying from this law of degeneration. Yeah, tell me about it. (laughs) So he, one of the interesting things he did is he talked about the lifespan of the patriarchs and he mapped out, if you look at the book of Genesis, and you, you'll notice that the early patriarchs, Adam and others, Methuselah, I think, was the longest living, 900 plus years. Uh, they lived very long. And then at the point of the flood, there's a sudden change, and their lifespan rapidly decays off until you get to about 70 years for a lifespan. But even Moses lived to about 120 or something, didn't he? Yes, that's right. That's right. In fact, the first one to have kind of what we would call an average lifespan was King Saul. Okay. So Saul and David both lived about 70 years old. Right. Okay, so, you know, people say, well, this is just made up, you know, this is mythology. But the interesting thing that he showed is that this mathematically works out to an exponential decay curve. So what you would have to believe if this is made up is that they knew about exponential decay curves and could calculate them, <laughs> right? And that they did that to, to figure out what ages they were going to do, and then they put just enough randomness in there that it's not quite a 100% match. You know, so it's just crazy to believe that this could be man-made. You know, it, it proves, it's evidence that the longevities that are recorded in Scripture are real, that they actually match, and they match a physical process. Because whenever we examine physical processes that decay over time, this is the kind of way they do. They, it's a natural decay curve. Huh, so, cool. uh, yeah, so that is kind of neat. That was a little, just a little side mention that he wanted to show. But he said basically that we are still subject to that today. And again, you know, we kind of know this by personal experience. So he said, everything degenerates if left to itself. And uh, and of course, even if not left to itself, even if you try to continually repair it, eventually you run out. I guess, I guess if you, if you had a team of people and all the money in the world, I suppose that you could keep a car from 
decaying. You would just keep replacing the parts as they decayed. Right. Um, But that's basically the only way. You see stuff in the newspaper every once in a while about, uh, I think I saw an article not too long ago, a few months ago, about some guy that had a Honda Accord that just passed a million miles or something. But he's like a car mechanic, and he, he kept it up all along. Mm. And that's how he managed to get it, you know, running that long. Wow. And I, I wonder, a million miles, he must have even had to replace the engine, too. I would imagine so, yeah. So, um, yeah, you just the only thing you keep going is you keep the odometer ticking away every time. Right. So, But it required intelligent intervention, and that's the key. Right. Without intelligence, everything decays away. So it requires intelligence to repair these things, to... To build them in the first place. Sure. So uh, he went into detail about what's killing us. Basically, mutations are killing us. Every time the cell divides, it copies, makes a copy of the DNA. And so every cell in our bodies that's growing, so for instance, whenever you add a new layer of skin or whenever you add a new lining to the inside of your stomach or whenever you add new cells to your liver maybe maybe you're repairing some uh, damage to your liver and you're replacing the cells there every time that the cells divide they have to copy the dna now there's about 50 different molecular machines that are involved in the copying of the dna and the uh, production of proteins from dna um well i'm sorry Actually, not even the production of proteins, just in the copying itself. So there's copying machines, there is proofreading machines, there's repairing machines. And one of the interesting things, he didn't talk about this, but one of the interesting things is that this is now an insolvable problem for the evolutionist. Because without these 50 different machines trying to make as accurate as possible a copy of the DNA, you're not going to have accurate copies and everybody would just go extinct within a few generations. Mm-hmm. With these uh, machines, you still get errors. You still get mistakes. It's about three new typos per cell division on average for human beings. Really? So that's quite a lot. But the insolvable puzzle is that these molecular machines that do such a fantastic job, and that's three typos when you're talking about billions of nucleotides. That's the codes of the DNA, the actual C's, T's, G's, and A's, the, the actual basically letters of uh, the coding system. There's billions of them. So to only have three typos, that's a, just an incredible level of accuracy. Right. Those machines that do that, they are themselves encoded in the DNA. So the instructions on how to build those machines are in the DNA, which those machines are copying. Okay. So how can that have occurred by natural processes? You have to have everything in place in order to get accurate copies. If you want to have copies that are going to last over time, they have to be accurate. Right. The way they can be accurate is with all that machinery that proofreads, double-checks, makes repairs, you know, rejects things that are not accurate enough. So uh, it's just an amazing process that, that's gone through. Yeah. He referenced a geneticist by the name of Michael Lynch. So if people want to Google that and look at the actual research, they can. But Dr. Sanford said that by age 15 then, 
Each cell in your body has about 6,000 errors, okay? So 6,000 copying mistakes in each of your cells by the time you are 15 years old. That's how many times your cells are dividing. Right. That would be about 2,000 times it's divided by age 15. And by age 60, each of the cells in your body uh, averages about 40,000 errors. Oh, my gosh. I just turned 60. Really? Okay, start counting, buddy. <laughs> and it's all downhill from here, right? Well, it's you're going to continue. Every time your cells divide, you're going to continue to add three more typos. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, and, of course, this we know a lot about how cancer happens, and uh, this is actually where cancer comes from. So the cells that are dividing in your body, there's about uh, each cell, if it has about five specific mistakes that cell will become a cancer cell. So, And there are different types of cancers based on uh, exactly what goes wrong with the cell. Right. For one thing, it needs to have the mechanism that controls whether or not the cell divides or not. That has to go wrong because the cell has to start growing uh, rapidly. The uh, mechanism that controls the rate of growth, that has to have something go wrong with it. And then the mechanism that says you can only grow so many times and then you have to stop. If that doesn't go wrong, then you get a benign tumor. It'll grow to a certain size and then it'll stop. Right. If that if that also gets an error in it or has had a previous error from a, a previous copying mistake, then now you've got a cell that's not only growing rapidly, but it will never stop growing. Wow. And of course, that's what kills you if you don't, if you don't cut it out. And it keeps reproducing these mistakes in the cell. Exactly. Yep. So, of course, if something happens, that if the mistake happens to be a lethal mistake to the cell, then the cell's just going to die. But if it's not a lethal cell, a lethal mistake, it's just a mistake that starts building up like rust on a bridge, you know, that the right. beams start to rust and they start to get weaker. And eventually, the whole bridge is going to collapse. And that's what happens to us. Right. You know, just die. Everything starts falling apart. Your skin starts to get thinner and thinner. Right. Bruise easily. You don't get as well as fast when you get sick. Right. Injuries take longer to heal. Uh, on and on it goes because your cells are damaged and uh, just don't work as well. Wow. That's so, really interesting. Yeah, isn't it? It's fascinating. So the big point that he makes with this is that that same process is being passed along through the germ cells or through the reproduction cells. So through the egg and the sperm. When, when you are generating those germ cells, you're passing along errors. So each new, what the geneticists have reported is that each new generation, a man and woman will pass on between 60 and 175 new mutations to the next generation. So my children have, so if you want to average that, I'd say about 100. My children have about 100 additional mutations than I started out with when I was born. Wow. And my father and mother had, on average, roughly about 100 mutations less when they were born than, when, than I did when I was born. So each succeeding generation is accumulating more and more of these mistakes. Exactly. Wow. So uh, you can see that there is a real problem here. So 
So instead of the the science fiction shows that we see where future human beings have bigger brains and they're stronger and smarter and everything else, that's not really the way we're headed. We're headed toward becoming weak, spindly little people eventually. Exactly. Yeah, that is exactly right. That science fiction is just that. It's science fiction. The scientific truth is that not just human beings, but all organisms are decaying. And for a while, they thought that maybe bacteria might be different and that bacteria would continue to be able to accurately reproduce, continue on. But they found that that even that's not true, that there is a high enough mutation rate in bacteria that even bacteria will eventually go uh, extinct. So let's see. Let me, I'm playing with my toy here. So how about this? <laughs> so uh, terrible bad news. <laughs> said think about it you know what what do we know we know right now that about two to three percent of babies have uh, physical birth defects we know that there are thousands literally thousands of genetic diseases and many of those diseases just have not happened in the past Uh, for instance alzheimer's he mentions you can search in history for diseases, you know, and the early physicians recorded many of the diseases they ran across. So even, you know, back to Hippocrates and things, physicians who wrote things down, you just don't find Alzheimer's. So there are a lot of these new developing problems that we're having. The fertility rate is much lower now than it has historically been. Again, you know, this is one of the things when there's a lot of mutations, uh, it's just harder to get pregnant. Wow. So, and he refer, referred to many of the other geneticists. There, um, there's a Dr. Crow, who I know from um, my own studies and readings on genetics, is a very famous geneticist. He has made the statement that we're inferior to cavemen. Modern man is inferior to cavemen. There's no doubt about it based on the genetics. Yeah, well, you could almost tell that. It's, it, you know, how many people today do you think if you threw them out in a cave with no modern conveniences and everything, how long would they last? Exactly. How long could they survive? It, it almost sounds like the pioneers of the Old West were, were tougher than we are today, too, because look at the hardships they had to endure, and somehow they got through it. Right. But it's hard to imagine people today, if we were trying to conquer a new wilderness like that, that we could even do the things that they did like, you know, 200 years ago. Right. And we know that archaeologically that uh, early humans, Neanderthal, uh, especially Neanderthal, but also Homo erectus, uh, had bigger brains. They had denser bones. Their teeth even were stronger. You know, it does seem that Dr. Crow is right. He also mentioned a Dr. Kondrashov, who's a molecular geneticist, who says that no geneticist, no geneticist doubts that man is degenerating. Wow. Yeah. Then he mentioned uh, Michael Lynch again, who has reported that the fitness line is between 1% and 5% per generation. Now, Dr. Sanford thinks that's too high. He thinks that it's not as high as 1%. And if you do the math on that, if you were to start from today and decay the, the human fitness by 1% per generation, human beings would be extinct by the next 6,000 years. 
So uh, that is really terrifying. And, and this is from a secular evolutionist, Michael Lynch. Wow. So uh, we're heading toward genetic extinction. That's right. And he says, Lynch says that there will be, the human race will reach significant incapacitation within the next few centuries. Wow. So thinking of, you know, more and more diseases and a lower and lower fertility rate until it just becomes almost impossible. We'll be like the panda, you know, we're just so difficult to have babies and there'll be so few of them that we'll be facing a almost certain extinction. Wow. Is Obamacare going to cover all this? <laughs> I like that. All right, here we go. <laughs> There, you deserve that. <laughs> well, um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. <laughs> and we're talking about genetic entropy, a lecture that I attended by Dr. John Sanford. Keith, does uh, Dr. Sanford have a, a book out about this stuff that we could buy and read this? Yes, he does. And it's called, surprise, surprise, Genetic Entropy. Okay. Definitely. And it's it's well written. It's not over your head. You know, obviously, there's a lot of data in there, a lot of research and things, but it's it's geared to the high school level reader. So, okay. Good book. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I'd like to get a hold of this book and read more about this. Absolutely. So he talked a little bit about what the Darwinists say about this. You know, they, for one thing, they'll say, okay, well, some of those mutations are beneficial. So, you know, benefits happen. And then also there is selection. Selection happens, natural selection. And of course, that may be true. The, the, it's possible that there may be benefits. Every benefit that we know of so far has been a degradation type of benefit where the loss of information helps the organism. Okay. So, like the bacteria becoming immune to antibiotics, that's because they lose the information on how to digest the antibiotic. Right. Uh, the peppered moth, finch beaks, all those things are examples of the loss of genetic information. So, say beetles that are become wingless because they live on a windy island. Flightless birds are examples of genetic changes that in certain circumstances can benefit the organism, but it's actually a net loss of information. So, And this happens in real life. I mean, we can think of things that, that could happen. For instance, a retreating army might need to cross a river. They cross a river on a bridge, and then they blow up the bridge in order to prevent the army that's chasing them from getting at them. Right. So that's a loss of information. But was it beneficial? Well, yes, it was. It kept that army alive. And so a lot of these things are beneficial temporarily to keep the organism alive. Another right. example you can think of is if you're in a hot air balloon and it starts to lose altitude. You could take that that's weighing the balloon down and throw it overboard. Right. Bye. But that's only a temporary fix. Exactly. Exactly. So eventually the balloon will start to go down again. Right. All of these things you're mentioning sound like temporary fixes, and that's it. Yep. The, st the overall downward, the overall trend is still downward. That's right. Now, what about selection? Does that help? Well, it does, does in certain cases. So let's think about this. For, let's go back to talking about human beings now, and you're having a couple of 
kids each generation. Let's say you have four kids. Maybe you're going to double the population every generation. So each couple has four children. Well, if you're having, a, on average, 100 mutations, then you know, maybe one child has fewer mutations than another. another you know, the, uh, one of the children has maybe 200 uh, because these things are, are still random. So it might be that that child is then more likely to die and the child with the fewer mutations is uh, likely to live. So, of course, selection does help and it especially helps in things like bacteria or fruit flies where there's a lot of progeny, right, a lot of offspring, and they reproduce rapid, quickly before their own cells have been decayed, basically. Right. So, so for bacteria, where they're having, you know, millions of millions of copies in a short period of time, then this issue is not such a big problem. But it's a real problem for more complex animals like mammals, so we are much more susceptible to decay than smaller organisms and less complex organisms. So does selection help? Yes, it does. It, it allows, you know, bacteria would probably be the last thing on the earth to go extinct. But that doesn't solve our problem. The more complex you are, and, and we kind of experience this in real life. I mean, the more complex are you drive, the more things there are that go wrong, that right. can go wrong, and that, that eventually do go wrong. Right. And, and he talked that... about a seminar that he was part of at Cornell University last year in 2011, where there were a bunch of molecular biologists. They had people from all different areas that deal with this topic, information theory, there were experts on population genetics, and they all got together on both, both sides, evolutionists and intelligent design people, to talk about this very serious problem of the fact that it does indeed, like human beings, are going to go extinct. So that was very interesting. And then Dr. Sanford, for those who just joined us, we're talking about a lecture from John Sanford, the plant geneticist from Cornell University. He talked about some computer research that he's been doing where they've developed a computer model to model what happens in DNA replication and what happens to the genetic information. And it's called, this program is called a Mendel's Accountant. And I believe you can find it online. I'm not sure if you can actually get it to run. Uh, it may be that they're just doing it themselves on supercomputers and running um, studies with it. But at least you can look it up and read more about it. But it's a state-of-the-art computer modeling for genetics. And it just shows that you cannot advance. So the only way to get organisms to advance is to meddle with the software and to actually make mutation rates much lower. You have to have a mutation rate of less than one per generation. So think about it. I mean, that sort of makes sense. If, you know, say you're a human couple and you're going to have four children, if on average each child gets one mutation, then there is no hope. It may take a lot longer to go extinct, but you will eventually go extinct because on average each of your children has one mutation. Mm -hmm. The only hope to continue living is if the average is less than 1.0. So, you know, that way say you have 10 children and nine of them have a mutation, but one of them has no mutations at all on average. And then you can see that the human race has a chance of continuing.
But that's far from the way things really are. The way things really are is that you have, a, on average, about 100 mutations per generation. What? Ooh. So then he went on to talk about the idea of junk DNA. And the reason that this had not been such a problem in the past for evolutionists, although the geneticists said that it was a problem, this 100, the answer from evolutionists was, well, okay, the DNA may be getting mixed up, but remember, only 2% of the DNA is a coded segment, and the rest of it is, you know, large sections of it are junk DNA. So, in fact, the term junk DNA was coined by an evolutionist, Dr. Ono. And uh, you get the joke there. It's kind of a punny name, Dr. Ono. <laughs> uh, so that made sense. I mean, think about it. If you're going to have 100 mutations in the next generation, but the chances are that those 100 mutations are fall into the junk level, that it doesn't matter – then, of course, then you can see, okay, because things could continue because only, you know, it was thought that only 2% of the DNA actually codes for protein. And while that might be true that the only 2% codes for protein, all the rest of the DNA codes for other things and is actually useful. In fact, the ENCODE project last month showed, what was it, Kirk, about 80% of the DNA is no longer considered junk. Yeah, I just read something about that recently, that they're finding that more and more of this, um, the parts of the DNA that they didn't think did anything, they're they're finding out that it does do something, kind of like um, there used to be a long list of what they considered vestigial organs that didn't do anything, but that list is getting shorter and shorter as they find that these organs all do have a purpose. Right. But to go back to the DNA portion, so now you can see that if your offspring are adding 100 mutations and 80% of the DNA is necessary DNA, actually useful DNA, 80% chance that those mutations you're going to get about, um, well, out of the 100 mutations, you'd get about 80 of them landing in areas that are necessary. Right. Um, needed by the organism. So again, so now that this ENCODE project last month showed that the DNA is largely useful, now it even brings into highlights this real problem that it can't be that human beings have lived very long. And certainly we will not live very long. You know, you're talking thousands of years at the most, a few, maybe 10, 20,000 years. Right. But not into the – you just can't survive into the hundreds of thousands of years. And so, therefore, looking back, how long could you have lived on the earth? So, not very long. Now, this – now, let's not bypass the fact that this prediction about the junk – this junk DNA being there was a prediction of evolution. So, when the theory of evolution predicts that there should be large amounts of junk in the DNA and it turns out that that's false – this data falsifies evolution, the theory of evolution. Right. If, if evolution was really as random as they say it is, then the junk DNA would make sense. But if the history of the human race, if it isn't, if our development isn't as random as they say it is, then that's more toward the intelligent design side that says that it was all designed for a purpose from the beginning. That's right. And also... What would? How do you make junk DNA? You make junk DNA by destroying working DNA. Right. 
breaking genes. So if 80% of the DNA is functional and only 20% of it is junk, that means that human beings have not existed very long. So you could kind of trace human history back to the point where and kind of estimate where the DNA was like 100% functional. Okay, right, and calculate how fast it's deteriorated over the centuries or whatever. That's right. That's right. And does this line up with like the um, the history of the human race as the Bible talks about it with the people that, you know, I guess we're talking about what, maybe six, seven, eight thousand years ago that, uh, um, you know, yeah. when the human race was young that they could have lived, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred years then and now we're down to about 70 yeah, actually, I guess the question is, uh, you know, can you use that as a molecular clock and go backward? Right. My guess is that it, as you go backward, as you go back to better functioning DNA, that that mutation rate would slow down. Because just think about it, everything would be working better. All of the proofreading machinery, the error correction machinery, all of those machines would be working better because we're talking about having fewer mutations being handed down generation to generation. So I think it would create one of those decay curves. So And that um, would actually make it feasible that there could have at one point been people that lived to seven, eight hundred years old. Oh, absolutely. Or a thousand years old. Right. Wow. Sure. That's really interesting. Yeah. Then one of the other things he pointed out when, you know, this uh, idea about diseases that we have that are more prevalent now, for instance, immune response diseases. And you notice that a lot of people have allergies that, you know, allergies among children is much more common than it used to be. Yes, I've noticed that. He also pointed out that some diseases have actually died out, that the bacteria that give us those diseases, that they have actually mutated out and have died. So those what were once pandemics have actually mutated to the point that they can't even be good diseases. And he mentioned Ebola and the SARS epi- epidemic that was of such concern uh, a decade ago. Those seem to have died out because of continued – it looks like that they mutated and became a disease-causing organism but then mutated again and have died out. Right. So, um, so all of that was very interesting. So that's basically the the talk that he gave at the um, uh, National Apologetics Conference. That's uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, isn't it? So we will have to have him back on as a guest. Again, I'd like to talk about this topic more in depth, and uh, maybe we can get some response from our atheist listeners and see what they think about it. This time, the conference had a lot on Islam, and so we might talk about Islam uh, on the, in the future episodes, so maybe next week. There was a really good talk by Stuart McAllister on Islam. Paul Cruz did a, a talk about answering Islam and how do we as apologists answer uh, Islam. Bill Dembski did a talk on the conservation of information. That was really interesting. So we might uh, talk about that on future shows also. Well, Kirk, I guess that's about it for the show. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. 
You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or your questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, faith.com. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,